Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Is that we talk about race. We talk about issues related to race. Um, the research on this front is so clear that the colorblind approach to parenting just doesn't work. The approach where you say, well, I just don't see color. color it's, it's, it's all, everybody's the same to me. All lives matter. That is one of the most effective ways of raising a child who has racial prejudices. Yeah. You're listening to Jan Lumenlan on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis, and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com. And then I also want to say just a little plug for our podcast. Help us out by making a donation on Patreon. It's a values-based donation. We put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into these episodes. And we um, need some support to keep the podcast going because uh, for it to be financially sustainable as we grow, we need a little bit more support to do all of the behind the scenes stuff. So check out Patreon and please make a values-based donation. Hi, this is Diana here. We have Jen Lumenlun on the show and she's the podcaster from Your Parenting Mojo. And we talk about everything on this episode from uh, parenting pods, the pandemic, how to raise children at a time when we really want to be more racially responsive, being a white parent and how to do that. And I'm curious, I have Debbie here, fellow parent, what your thoughts were on this episode. Well, there was a lot of really interesting food for thought. I really liked some of the conversation around power dynamics and gender and that kind of thing. But I, I actually just wanted to talk about piece around what's going on with pandemic and back to school right now that that you that comes up in the episode and here we are in a situation where a lot of our traditional structures are falling away that support families that support parents that support children that support education and we're left in this really hard place where we're all trying to figure something out we're all trying to do our best it's scary there's a lot of self-doubt. And in some ways, I think there's a silver lining to that, right? Which is that it's we're taking a look at some of the things that we just sort of do by default, but that may not be great in some ways. I mean, just as a quick example, I think I realized I spend so much time running errands, like 
getting the car wash, buying birthday presents, getting my hair cut. And a lot of that stuff, all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing that for the most part and it's okay. (laughs) So Yeah. yeah, but when it comes to the parenting thing, I mean, I think it's really easy to have this idea that there's like a right way to do it and we should do a certain way, but it's actually much more complicated than that. I think back in the spring, you did an episode with homeschooling expert. Yes, with Julie Bogart. And at that time was when I got on this big, like, I'm going to homeschool. This is the way through and went on a big bandwagon. And here I am. It's Friday. We're about to start school on Monday, Debbie. Me too. And um, yes. yes. And I would really want a teacher right now to help me like sit down and do this curriculum. I'm feeling completely lost. I am scared. I'm scared about exposure in a pan- in a pod. And I think what shows up is like Jill's episode on fear of a better option and comparison and that there isn't really maybe a best option right now. Yeah. I mean, I when we did the introduction to that episode, I had this very clear stance that I would be sending my kids back to school as soon as possible. Do you remember that? Yes. Well, guess what? I don't feel that way anymore. It's much more complicated than that. I've had to be flexible. We're starting remote school on Monday and I did not want to do that. It's happening for my district, so it's fine and we'll figure it out, I think. Um, But I also think that if they were opening in person, I might not do it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm very conflicted about it. It's much more complex than I realized. But I am finding what works for my family doesn't necessarily work for your family, doesn't work for my neighbor's family. And a lot of times I question whether I'm doing the right thing. But I think that that's really universal. Mm -hmm. Every time I hear about some other family's plan, I have a little pang of, should I be doing that too? but we're all doing the best we can and kids are resilient. We'll get through this. It's not going to be pretty. It makes me think about your episode with Louise Hayes and how that time of adolescence is this massive time of change. And that's why it's so scary for parents and they want to grab a hold of control and direct it and say, this is the way it has to be. And it's actually in loosening the grip a little bit and allowing the adolescent to be who they are, that they can do that developmental growth. And I think we need, we all need to do that with our children. Trust a little bit around a secure attachment with your child is sort of the most important thing. Are they seen? Do they feel safe? Do they feel secure with you? Do they feel soothed by you? That's the most important thing. The rest of it is icing. You know, if if they're doing soccer or not doing soccer, (laughs) that matters a lot less. And for us as parents to give ourselves a break and have a secure attachment with ourselves, how can I allow myself to be be soothed and safe and, and feel seen in this with my partner, within my family? This is the unprecedented time we're going to be written about in history. And, uh, and I think it's also a time of potential really positive growth and change for our country and for our world. So today we have Jen Lumen-Lung on the show. I'm super excited to talk with her. And Jen holds an MS in psychology and child development and a master's of education. And she hosts the podcast, Your Parenting Mojo, which is a reference guide for parents of toddlers and preschoolers based on scientific research and principles of respective parenting. And in each episode, she examines a topic related to parenting and child development from all sides to help parents understand how to make decisions about raising their children. She lives in California with her husband and daughter, and I've really been enjoying listening to her podcast. So I'm super excited to have a conversation with you today, Thank Jen. You. It's great yeah. to be here. Yeah. And I, in thinking about our conversation, I'm, I was, we were sort of brainstorming, what is it parents, what's on parents' minds right now? And I think 
I was actually just uh, for a talk I was going to give uh, reviewing some stats from the American Psychological Association, uh, this report that they do annually on stress in America. And in May, they upped it to monthly. <laughs> like, we can't do this annually anymore. <laughs> so much is changing. We don't want to yes. look at what's happening monthly. And in, in the most recent uh, report, the survey conducted found that 72% of Americans report that this is the lowest point in history that they can ever remember. 71% of parents are worried about the long-term impact of the pandemic on their children. 55% are reporting that their kids are acting out more. And at the same time, this was the interesting statistic that I wanted to um, talk with you about. Four in five parents are agree that they're grateful for the additional time that they've had with their children. <laughs> so here we are in this situation where we're, we're struggling, we're stressed, we don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we're finding these moments of gratitude for maybe, maybe we kind of like parts of this. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start with launching into a discussion of how to make this time maybe less stressful, but more meaningful. Mm. Yeah, I think there are <laughs> obviously so much going on in that, isn't there? And just in, just in those two statistics by themselves, that um, that it's stressful, and also that we can find something uh, in it to be grateful for, and to um, really feel as though we are uh, living here now in this moment with our children in a way that we have not been able to do before. Um, and so I, I think the, those two statistics really, really start to pull that out. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's no denying that this is an incredibly difficult time. Uh, it's difficult for middle-class white women like ourselves, um, who are relatively fortunate to be somewhat insulated from some of the things that are going on. And it is, uh, stressful for people who are in a place where they have to go out into situations every day where they are exposed to the virus and, uh, maybe lack healthcare, access to healthcare, um, and, and the other kinds of factors that make this even more difficult for them on, on top of which they don't have access to childcare and, and all those kinds of things. So, um, I, I would be interested to see some kind of, uh, breakdown of socioeconomic status with that data and, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and how different families at different levels are coping differently with it. I think that would be a very key point to tease out. And I hope somebody's looking at that. Right. Absolutely. And it just makes me think of the situation we're in with homeschooling, right? Yeah. So for <laughs> a, a portion of individuals, they're able to work from home. Maybe they're forming, and I'd love to talk to you about pandemic pods mm -hmm. and they're bringing in resources. And for a large portion of individuals, I was actually just reading something on um, the New York Times last night before bed, which I shouldn't be doing, but I was. And <laughs> it was a school in Illinois where the, um, the superintendent was saying, you can't wear your pajamas or be uh, during, during online. And for some families, the bedroom is the only place where these children are going to find yeah. um, a quiet place to, to um, do online schooling if, if even they have access to internet. So I'd love to talk with you about um, what we've been thrust into as parents. And this is, there's such a variety of experiences across different um, backgrounds and um, people's different resources, but homeschooling. And yeah. I know we've talked a lot about that on your show. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and just to piggyback what you're talking about in the New York Times article. Yeah, I, I saw that one as well. And um, it, yesterday as well, I actually saw a local news piece on uh, here in the Bay Area on uh, how families are coping with it. And they did an interview. One of the nice things about local news reporting right now is you get to see people where they are. And they did an interview with a woman in a homeless shelter. And she's she's lying on her front, basically, on a bunk bed uh, doing this this interview into the camera. And, and this is the environment that her child is learning in um and and it's a it's one room <laughs> shared with her mother and there there's nowhere else to go and so um yeah i think it is a bit problematic to expect that our children are going to be in their school uniforms um in a quiet learning environment that isn't their bedroom with their laptop <laughs> every day so yeah um so we had actually planned to homeschool for a while. So this this was less of a shift for us than it has been for some families. I had uh, been looking at the school system for, for a number of years now and uh, really thinking about, well, how do children learn? And actually wrote my master's thesis on what is the process that happens inside their brains when children are learning. And what I realized was uh, that that doesn't match up very well with how the school system works. <laughs> and so when I was when I was learning about this, I would go to the, the UC Berkeley um, campus library and I'd get out every textbook that they had on, on how children learn in school. And that because it's UC Berkeley, it's a public school, most of the textbooks are from the 80s. And so the textbook authors in the 80s are lamenting the fact that we know how children's brains learn and our school system has not caught up with that. So what that means is that, you know, nothing has really changed since the 80s. We're still using the same methods we were using in the 80s when the, the textbook authors were giving the advice to, uh, I mean, it's basically how do you entice children to learn something they're not really interested in learning? That's one of the key functions of school. Um, and the tragedy is that there are so many devoted, talented, incredible teachers working within the system that doesn't allow them any space to use those talents that says, this is what you're going to teach and how are you going to teach it? Oh, and by the way, you're responsible for the test result outcomes at the other end, um, even though you have no flexibility within that system. So that was a reason why we had uh, decided to move towards homeschooling anyway. And so we were just fortunate that our preparations were leading us in that direction. And I know that a lot of parents are, for the first time, uh, making a decision they had never planned to make and that that can be incredibly stressful uh, because change just by itself is hard. Just, just uh, even, even if you welcome the change, <laughs> going through a change is hard. Never mind a, cha a change that's associated with a decision that you never wanted to make, that you were committed to public schools, that you were, um, that you built your life around your, your child being in school every day. And so uh, being thrust into this situation for, for the first time, uh, I think, is, is one reason why parents are really struggling with, with just making the decision right now. And it and it's not always a clear cut decision because there's so no. many different iterations of what this could look like, right? Yeah. So homeschooling is one iteration, and and we too decided um, back in March that we were going to homeschool, which is very different from schooling at home. Yes, those are two very different things. Schooling at home is you're doing the curriculum of school, and it's teacher led, and it's this expectation that school is coming into your home. Don't wear your pajamas or slippers because you're at school now, right? Yeah. Whereas homeschool, like we're making muffins, we're taking breaks, we're going to the bathroom when you want to go, and 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 it's never really, it's much more emergent learning, um, child led inquiry, 
And then there's all these other new outgrowths like pandemic pods mm-hmm. and <laughs> how are, how are families going to, going to do this? How are we going to pull our resources in new ways that, that some of these have already preexisted in the homeschool um, atmosphere, but, but they are new iterations of it. If you're following yeah. the curriculum. Yeah. And I think pandemic pods falls into that, um, that category and yeah, to, to help parents make that decision to see what are the suite of options and, and how do the criteria stack up against each other from my family. I actually created a tool to help families, um, across each of the, the decision-making criteria, you know, what, what's our acceptable exposure to, to COVID, um, what, what is my work situation like? What is my partner's work situation like? Um, wh- what are some of the major concerns about homeschooling and pandemic pods and other options? And uh, how how do they stack up relatively compared to each other? And so that tool is actually freely available at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash school decision. Um, and you can use that to weight the options and see which one might be the best fit for you. Um, and yeah, I think for, for many parents, pandemic pods can be kind of this in-between space. Um, when, when you're talking about actually homeschooling, you're making a legal decision about your child's uh, educational future. You're, you're saying that I'm going to withdraw them from school, um, at least for the short term, uh, for a period of a year, probably, and that we are going to follow our own path, which may involve a curriculum. You may choose to purchase a curriculum. Some families do. Other families do a more interest-emergent learning approach like you are. And But the pandemic pods can be kind of this middle ground because right now we're in this period that's really unique in educational history, as far as I can tell, where you can stay enrolled in the school system and you can also play around the edges a whole lot <laughs> like you've never been able to before. So uh, you could have your child log into the lessons every day and do those. Or right now it's possible for you to send an email to your teacher and say, our family's kind of overwhelmed right now. And I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to submit assignments this week. And that right now that is an acceptable answer. And that has never been an acceptable way of dealing with school right now in in history. And so that gives us the freedom to play with different models of learning that we may not have been able to play with before. And uh, some families I know are hiring teachers or tutors and are forming these pods with other families to spread the load. Um, Some families are are sharing care amongst themselves and rotating children just between the families with no additional care. But I think uh, a lot of families who are thinking of forming these pods are doing it with a teacher. And the teacher's job is either to keep the child on track with schoolwork or to do this more emergent learning approach. Um, and typically when we, we start hearing about pods, the, the articles, the news articles that have come out in the last couple of weeks have for, followed this really predictable format that pods are a great way of uh, helping parents to spread the load, to reduce the burden on them um, and to uh, just bring some sanity back to the school uh, experience. And then they go into the social justice considerations and talk about how um, not everybody has access to pods and we should consider adding some person of a diverse background to our pod um, uh, to increase access for those people. And honestly, I I think that that really, that binary approach where we see pods as uh, something that is possibly detrimental to social justice outcomes unless you sprinkle diversity on the top really lacks a lot of nuance. And that instead, what we should be doing is reaching out to communities that maybe we as white parents don't necessarily interact with very often and, and talking about, you know, what, what are you seeing in your community and what resources do you need? And what am I seeing in my community and what resources do I need? 
Um, because what we will probably find is people in these communities have been operating these kind of under the radar systems to help themselves cope for a long time. For, for, for white families, this may be the first time that they, that our, our social systems are really breaking down or failing us. But for other families, uh, th this has been the case <laughs> all along and they form their own support systems and, and mechanisms and that we actually, rather than sprinkling diversity on the top, uh, for, for primarily for our benefit, it has to be said, would learn a lot and, and would advance social justice outcomes to a far greater extent if we truly tied our future and our children's future with families from people of diverse backgrounds um, in a way that doesn't just say, you know, we're sprinkling this diversity on top, but we are, our futures are tied up together and we can learn a lot from you. Maybe you can learn something from us. And uh, this is how we're going to form our pod with, with this set of assumptions. Um, and I think that that can be a potentially really powerful approach for, for families who are, who are looking to advance social justice causes to actually practice what they're preaching when they go out to a march and they're saying Black Lives Matter. Yeah, you know, it, it makes me think of that new podcast that's out. I'm sure you've looked at it, the Nice White Parents podcast. I have started to listen. Uh, yeah, and, <laughs> and it's sort of like, oh, this is this is a painful listen. And yes. it, um, uh, and as a white person, there's always this like, oh, I'm so embarrassed to be, you yeah. know. And at the same time, I think it really highlights that sort of that experience of um, white parents coming in and poaching for diversity reasons, yeah. you know, resources or wanting a diverse experience for their child. And who is this really benefiting and why and, and how, how the existing school system has really privileged white white parents and white families for a reason, right? This is the the exciting part of this times of that so much is being uprooted. I remember we were redoing our landscaping um, when we first moved into our home and we were talking with our gardener about like, what's the best approach to do this? And he said, just take everything out. <laughs> <laughs> Take everything out and then you'll have you'll you'll have a better chance of doing what you want to do here. So there's a bit of uprooting, uh, not necessarily by choice of how we're educating our kids. And there's really exciting things that can come out of that. One is what you're talking about. If you're forming communities um, with your kids, how you can approach that in a more socially just way. But I think the other thing is this opportunity to teach our kids some things that too, yes. <laughs> they weren't, they weren't getting in school. And then for me in the process, learning it. So in our little, you know, homeschool situation, I have a, a colleague, a colleague, a friend who's taking on uh, the history component and she also has native American heritage. And so she is drawing so much from indigenous um, cultures and history and incorporating that into fifth grade is American history. So we get a chance to teach American history in a, in a different way than maybe it would have been taught in the school system. And I'm teaching science and it's so fascinating to learn about like how you can teach science in a way that's just not cramming in information because we don't need kids with information that's crammed in right now. We need kids that can ask questions. And what is a scientific question? And how is that different than a non-testable you know, non question? So I think it's, it's exciting, but also can be really overwhelming yeah. for, for folks because of we're juggling all of this. And I, I also think there's a chance for it not to be so overwhelming. And I'm wondering how you, how you, how you approach that. How do you make it not so stressful and keep it exciting? Yeah. I think for us, a big part of it has been uh, that if if you b 
believe that uh, the best way to learn, or really the only way to learn, is to teach your child, then that puts an enormous amount of pressure on you as the parent and you as the teacher. Um, if you look at schools and you think, okay, there's a teacher standing in front of the class who has a curriculum of some kind and a set way of conveying this information, and we measure success by whether the child is able to recite at the end of the class what has been taught, then yes, the, the pressure on us to replicate that is huge. <laughs> but if we can take a step back from that and say, okay, is, is that really the best way that people learn? Is it really the only way that people learn? Then it opens up incredible opportunities and it reduces the stress level. And so I'll give you an example of that. Um, probably about two months ago, my daughter spent about three weeks building this incredible structure in her backyard. And I can send you a picture of it to send out with the blog, with the uh, the podcast episode, if you like. But it's. Um, it started out with our neighbors were making a fence and they had some scraps left over from it. And so she wanted them. And so we asked them and they, they granted us access to these wood scraps. And so I remembered we had a hot glue gun. And so I taught her how to use the hot glue gun and, you know, don't touch the tip. And, <laughs> and uh, at that point, she basically started ransacking the house for anything that could be glued together. <laughs> and she built this incredible structure in our backyard yard with uh, cardboard boxes and they were all decorated and uh, Tupperware and, and to-go containers donated by half the people on our street. And, um, and, and she, it was entirely self-directed. And we have an hour of playtime every day. And so I would sometimes go out and help with her. But the, the whole time I would be following her directions, she would be telling me what she wanted me to do to, to further this work that she had planned. And so you might look at that and think, okay, well, that's that's cool. It took her three weeks. It, it kept her pretty occupied for those three weeks. But did she really learn anything? And so there's a really fun exercise that I like to do where you, you really look below the surface and see, okay, well, what did a person learn from something like that? And so I, I created this checklist and I thought, okay, well, she learned how to make a plan. She learned how to uh, adapt her plan when something didn't stick the way she thought it would or something fell apart or you know, something just didn't work the way that she had intended. Uh, she learned how to use manners to uh, dictate an, an email to me, to our neighbors, and then how to thank them when they, uh, when they sent over materials so that maybe they would consider sending more next time that they, they came across them. Uh, she learned how to persevere and how to keep going when something didn't work the way that she had hoped. Uh, and, and I ended up creating this list of, it was like 12 or 15 things that she had learned. I mean, these are, these are critical thinking skills. These are higher order uh, learning skills that it's not just reciting some fact or some way of doing things. It's a, it's the kind of skill that, I mean, I, frankly, I couldn't have taught to her if I had tried. <laughs> and she learned this in by herself in our backyard with a bunch of wood scraps and $3 worth of hot glue sticks. Mm -hmm. And so when we see learning in that way, we can just breathe. <laughs> the pressure is off us and we can have fun conversations with our children and just be around our children and that they will learn from us and with us and with their peers through phone calls and through shouting to the neighbor's kids through the fence and, and in a variety of ways that don't look anything like 
a teacher standing in front of a classroom teaching. And I imagine that a lot of our listeners who have kids probably could tell a similar story of Mm -hmm. during this time of the pandemic of how their kids have been resourceful and created something Mm -hmm. incredible and where the friction occurs with um, educating at home is that when we feel this pressure that we need to pull them from that to go do the worksheet or to go do the material. Yuval Noah Harari has talked a lot about what is what are the what do our children need in the future? What is the future that we need? These kids are going to grow up to be adults at some point. And the one guarantee is that the only thing that we know for sure is that change is a constant. And we need kids that can be creative problem solvers that can collaborate with other people. So in that story, you're also talking about collaboration of looking for, I'm not my little unit, but I'm part of a bigger system that may have resources that we can exchange and work with each other. And also being able to, like you said, persevere and persist through and be that sort of lifelong um, intrinsic motivated learner. I know that you are that. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing this podcast. You probably, if you look at my bedside table, it's all psychology books. I look forward to reading them. Yes. It's interesting to me. Yeah. And that's what I want for, for my children as well. Right. And that my, um, my husband's actually in education. And he said that when he was in his PhD program, his, his um, advisor said, they're going to school the smarts right out of them. <laughs> that's my biggest fear. Right. So we, we have an opportunity to do that differently. Another area that you've talked a lot about in the podcast is how we also uproot some of the belief systems that are in place in our parenting and in particular patriarchy in parenting. So you did an excellent show with Carol Gilligan on uh, a few episodes back that I just ate at. I loved it and loved her. And um, she describes patriarchy as when children are suddenly up against a force that takes their human capacities and divides them into either masculine or feminine and privileges the masculine ones. So I'd love for you to describe how that shows up in parenting and then what you're doing to combat it. And I know we probably both have experiences of Mm. personal experiences of how that's happened for our kids. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I should give a shout out to my co-host in that episode, um, Brian Stout, who was actually the one who introduced me to the whole topic and uh, who made me see how relevant it is to parenting. Um, and, and so when, when listeners are hearing this word patriarchy for the first time or the first time in a while, maybe they're thinking, oh, well, you know, that's, that's man hating. I don't, I don't hate men. <laughs> Patri- I mean, what, what really is patriarchy and how is it relevant to me? And so, yeah, so, so p- patriarchy is not about hating men. Um, patriarchy is about power. And as you mentioned, it's about taking these human qualities, these are qualities that all people have, and saying that some of them are masculine qualities, and I'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening and not watching, and some of these are feminine qualities. And so when we think about what are these, well, masculine, typically masculine ones would be things like logic and rationality and decisiveness and the ability to set boundaries and, and you know, strength-related uh, characteristics. And then these feminine qualities are are uh, things like nurturing and um, 
warmth and tenderness and surrender. And what we what we then do under a patriarchal system is we say, okay, well, masculine qualities are superior to feminine qualities. And so um, that creates all kinds of problems, not least of which because all people have all of these qualities. <laughs> and so I actually find myself in an interesting position where I have more masculine type qualities than feminine type ones. You know, I wor work in this field and do this work where logic and the ability to form an argument and um, where these kinds of things are, are really prized. And uh, a lot of the emotional qualities as well, I, I have more on the masculine side than the feminine side. Um, and that is sort of prized. It's a reason why we are able to say to our girls, you know, go into STEM careers, go into these things that have been historically masculine careers, because being masculine is a good thing. Being, being, having these masculine ways of thinking is a good thing. If you think about it, do we ever encourage our boys to go into caring professions that are currently considered to be feminine dominated professions, mostly because they're low paid, low status, because we don't privilege caring. We don't privilege nurturing. Um, no, most of us don't. I mean, have, have any, has any parent of a, of a boy who's listening to this episode encouraged their child to be a nurse? to go into some kind of caring profession, probably not. And so um, what we see is that these systems that privilege the masculine over the feminine, they don't just hurt women, they hurt men as well. Because men also, men and boys have this, this intrinsic need to be nurtured, to feel loved. Um, but they are told, well, that's not allowed. You, you're not allowed to express any emotion that isn't anger. You know, if you're crying, we tell our boys, stop crying, man up. Um, re real boys don't cry, men don't cry. And so what they learn is they're not allowed to express any emotion except for anger. And so that's one of the ways in which we have the most uh, power, I guess is the, <laughs> the wrong word, but the most potential to influence the way we either pass on patriarchy or don't pass on patriarchy uh, to our children is through the way in which we use power in our homes, because that's really the key. In the episode with Carol Gilligan, I loved the line where she said that boys are taught to respond, I don't care. Yeah. And girls are, spot, are taught to respond, I don't know. Yeah. And what's interesting when you're talking about the feminine qualities being devalued, what actually plays out in, in some of the research is that it's those very feminine qualities that are key in um, our emotional intelligence. And we had Daniel Goleman on the show a while back, sort of one of the leaders in emotional intelligence. And he talks about how in higher level leadership, it's actually emotional intelligence, which includes things like empathy and awareness of your own emotions mm -hmm. that is what creates a good leader, that what sets, sets a good leader apart. So yes, this is harmful to our boys as much as it's harmful to our girls, this um, devaluing of these masculine qualities. And I, I know for myself, I, I um, saw it firsthand when uh, my, I have two boys and they started doing sports and my little one was six and he was going on to a, his first baseball team. And the coach came out to the huddle and he said, there's two rules in baseball. He's saying these to the little six, five, six, seven-year-olds. There's two rules in baseball. The first rule is have fun. And the surf second rule is we don't cry in baseball. Right. And I wanted to go punch the guy. I want, it, it was as if I, if I, as if I had girls and someone came up to them and commented on their body size or, you know, like I felt this fire inside of me. And then here's the, the clincher. 
is that as a mom watching this, I felt like I couldn't step onto that field and go talk to this male coach and say, this isn't okay, because it would just be like, oh, these soft moms. Yeah. And that's the real predicament we're in, even if we don't necessarily believe it in our household, or maybe we are perpetuating in our household, but we don't know. I mean, I think you definitely talked about that on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that story just gave me the goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's a very sort of externally focused uh, example of it. But there are there's stuff within our house that happens all the time. I was doing an interview with uh, Hannah and Kelty who host the upbringing podcast that I think you would also enjoy and your listeners would also enjoy. And uh, they were talking about how they'd been to a black lives matter March. And uh, you know, it's, they're talking about resist and, and that we need to dismantle systems of oppression and they get home and they're one of the children doesn't want to brush their teeth. And they're <laughs> the first reaction is go brush your teeth. And, and so it's, it's the, these systems of power exist within our families. And because it's so, because it's the way we were raised, you know, children, when, when I was raised, you don't answer back to your parents, you just don't. And so to, to choose a different path, is something that you have to make a very conscious decision to do. And I'm not saying that we should be in a relationship where we're completely permissive and that, well, if a child doesn't want to brush their teeth, well, yeah, that's great. You don't, you don't have to brush your teeth anymore, sweetie. There's no problem with that. Um, but, but if we can instead understand, well, why doesn't the child want to brush their teeth and address those underlying needs, then we can work towards a solution that actually works for both of us without us needing to exert this power over them that we have been doing historically. And it's it, because it's so baked into, I mean, every aspect of how we raise our children, it's so difficult to take that step back and think, okay, what am I about to say? And is that what the really the, the message that, and the relationship that I want to have with my child? And how could I do that differently? And so a big part of my work is is helping parents to uh, to make those different choices that are grounded in their values um, but that they don't see the discrepancies between what they truly believe are their values and the ways that they're interacting with their children on a daily basis and I think there's an element of emotional avoidance here on the part of the parent too right because I know for myself when I'm the most like domineering and the least like present with my kids is when I'm wanting to get out of that moment. Like I, I, I don't, I know, I don't like the feeling that I'm having that my child is having a feeling and I want to control that. Yeah. Or um, I have some agenda that I'm trying to get to and I don't have the time to sit down and like go through why this Lego structure that broke is so important to you, but I just need to get the room clean so we can go to bed, you know? And so um, I think that's also part of it. Like the attunement in our own work with our own emotions and our own ability yeah. to sit with and allow and value our emotional experience as parents. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly important. And uh, I mean, basically what we're doing when we're doing this work is we're reparenting ourselves yeah. at the same time as we are trying to make these choices that are going to shift the interactions that we're having in our family. And just the reparenting yourself is incredibly difficult work. <laughs> Um, see, seeing the ways that are the choices that our parents made that we, we can acknowledge were usually grounded in a desire to do what was best for us. 
They were doing the best that they could with the tools that they had. But what we see now is that a lot of these decisions left us in a place where, yeah, we feel triggered by by things like mess, um, by everyday situations that pop up with our children. And yeah, a lot of parents come to me and say, well, when is my child going to grow out of this behavior that's driving me nuts? And so my task is then to say, okay, well, it's actually not the child's behavior that's the issue here. That's not the problem that you're having. The problem that you're having is that there's something going on, probably related to something that happened when you were younger, that caused some kind of traumatic stress response uh, in you. And that when your child engages in this behavior, that comes right back. (laughs) And you react without having the space to choose a different response. And so we work through a lot of tools where we create create space to be able to uh, have that moment where we then can choose. We're starting to nudge towards acceptance commitment therapy language here, aren't we? Where, we? where we unhook from old narratives and that aren't serving us anymore um, because these, these systems did serve us for a very long time. They kept us safe. But now as parents, they are not serving us. They are, they are creating rifts in our relationships with our children. And so we can create new paths of learning, of being with our children uh, when we make different choices. And that's, that's a big part of the work that I do with parents. Yeah. So we're reparenting ourselves in terms of how to respond when our emotions show up, how to stay aligned with our values and that acceptance commitment therapy way. And we're also, I mean, going back to the education thing, we have traumas around our own education and say we have traumas around how we learned math or how we learned writing. And Julie Bogart, who was also on our show, and she's an excellent resource in homeschooling, talked about how we have to work through our own educational traumas Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we're teaching our kids and how that will show up. And then at the same time, we're also working on, and I know for you and me as two white moms, working on our, our racial identity and, and how, how do we want this environment with our kids to be different maybe from the environment that we, at least for me, that I, that, that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious if you can speak a bit to that of how you're bringing um, your own understanding of um, your white privilege as a mom and in your household into your, into your parenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been a journey for me. Um, I would say it probably started uh, four and a half years or so ago. Up until that point, if you'd asked me if I have white privilege and specifically white privilege as a parent, I I kind of wouldn't have known what you were asking, <laughs> what you meant. Yeah. And, uh, and so I ended up digging into this idea after hearing uh, in a, a fellow podcaster's uh, podcast episode on on topics related to parenting she's she's a black woman and and she's raising a a half black child and uh, her podcast is called how to get away with parenting and she had uh, done this episode and talked about how a black parent cannot have their child take their own snack and their own toy into a store because somebody might think they stole it and how parents of black boys particularly are afraid that their child is going to have a meltdown in a public place because there's nothing uh, more threatening to the white mind than a black child who is out of control. And so when I heard those things, I mean, I just, I yes, having a toddler have a meltdown in public is embarrassing. It's happened to me. <laughs> um, but I've never worried for my safety in that moment or for the safety of my child. And in that moment, I thought, whoa. <laughs> 
I have privilege and I had no idea. And so I went on this journey of exploring that and listeners actually got to follow along with it because I I released episodes on it as I was learning about it. And so there was an episode on um, how does white privilege show up in parenting and then how does it show up in education where it's, I mean, it's absolutely permeates every aspect of the school system. Um, the, the places that you can think about it being with, with uh, segregated, gifted and talented programs, as well as, I mean, the most innocuous example you could imagine, the way in which we, we uh, set rules around show and tell, the fact that you're bringing in something from home, that you're promoting this individualistic, consumer-centered uh, way of being in the world, and you're saying that the child has to present information about it in a certain way that is very much geared towards presentation skills that you need to be successful in the white-dominated workplace and, and doesn't, uh, doesn't allow children who come to schools with a very different skill set with probably far superior oral presentation skills in a different format <laughs> and doesn't allow them space to express those and, and to, for those to be valued. So yeah, so it's in parenting, it's in schools, it's in every aspect of our lives. And, and as I went through this process of uncovering this for myself, I was publishing episode after episode after episode on it. It was interesting as, as you're talking about that, it just brought back this memory of when my child was in kindergarten and we were in, we were in a large public school where there was just a real diversity of um, backgrounds of the kids in the school in terms of um, resources and what their families had. And they had this big fundraiser where kids were asked to sell tickets for um, lottery tickets. And at the end, they, whoever sold the most tickets got to go into the prize room and go pick out a prize. And then they went down the list and they were announcing it over the, this, the speakers mm -hmm. and a member sitting in the classroom, they were doing it by class. So sitting in the classroom and watching as they announced who sold the most. And then that kid got to go in the prize room first. And then who sold the next most. And it was this very obvious who has what. Yep. Uh, and it was so incredibly painful. It was kindergarten. To, to watch that. I think one of the criticisms that's sort of shown up, and this was, you know, sort of like with the book, White Fragility, mm -hmm. one of the criticisms of white fragility is that, that um, we can sit and psychoanalyze all day long and, and learn and read as, as white parents or white women about racial injustice and oppression, but it's really the taking action and the policy yeah. change that matters. And I'm curious how, what does that look like in, in your household? Yeah, I think it takes a variety of forms and, and probably the one closest to home is that we talk about race. We talk about issues related to race. Um, the research on this front is so clear that the colorblind approach to parenting just doesn't work. The approach where you say, well, I just don't see color. It's, it's, it's all, everybody's the same to me. All lives matter. It's, um, that, that is one of the most effective ways of raising a child who has racial prejudices. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, we, we talk about it all the time. So for example, when my daughter, who she was probably four or five at the time, she got super interested in jail and what happens and why does a person go to jail? And so we're talking about that. And uh, we're also talking about in, in those conversations, how uh, two people who do the same thing might, one of them might go to jail, another one might not because of the color of their skin. The people who have dark colored skin is, are more likely to go to jail than somebody who has light colored skin, even if they do the same thing wrong. And so we're, we're bringing in uh, these, these ideas into every aspect of 
conversations that we're having with her. When we're driving on the street and, and we see somebody uh, who's in a tent, you know, this, this came up when she was probably three, she'd been camping um, and she noticed there were people camping on the side of the road. Um, why, are, why are those people camping on, on the side of the street and, and having conversations about that? And why is it that uh, most of the people that we see in our local uh, area where there are people camping on the side of the street, uh, why, why, why are they black? Why do they have dark skin? And what are some of the structural reasons that uh, mean that they are unable to get jobs? You know, why, why is that? And these are conversations we're having with a three and a four-year-old. And I think that it's also equally important and what, um, what we're trying to do in our household as well is really highlighting the strengths and, yes. the, and the richness of yes. different cultures, different backgrounds, different races. So like one of the things that that we've been doing at night is we do bedtime black history mm. and we have these great cards. They're flashcards. Yeah. The uh, urban intellectuals ones. Yeah. And so we just pull a card and, and we love the STEM deck in particular. And we each pull a card and read about an artist or an innovator or a scientist that have changed our world. Yep. It's also not only talking about racism and social injustice, but also talking about the, the richness in, here in America, of American culture um, that is built and, and really sourced in a Black history, but also a, a number of different backgrounds. I think there's also a lot of opportunities for, for me as a white mom to really question some of my daily practices because I've been so through the lens of my white experience that mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. And, and seeing this in a positive way, I think is, is, is really important. We, we shouldn't just be having the negative conversations with our children. We, we absolutely need to be having the positive side as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, uh, that yes, we need to expose our children to uh, people in these diverse environments. Ultimately, what we need to do is we and our children need to have true relationships with people yeah. who look different from us yeah. and that these, and this is part of the promise of, um, uh, of this time is that these relationships can be grounded in interests. We're not just throwing children together in a classroom who, who don't have any particular interest in common other than the fact they are the same age, but that we can, um, we can, if our child is interested in soccer, we can enroll them in the soccer league across town that we wouldn't normally go to maybe that none of the kids from their preschool are enrolled in um, instead of staying with all the people who look like us and, and having a team of people who look like us. And, and we can show up to those games and we can bring snacks and we can share snacks with the, the other people, the other parents at the game and and form these these friendships that are based on interests that are that are true friendships it's not just well you know i want a diverse friend so i better go and find one right. it's here's this thing that we have in common we're we're tied up in this together um, and and our our children's success in on this soccer team is is bound up together and and that to me um, is is really where we want to be going with this yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I actually have a post called, uh, I think it's, thir- it's up to 39 things that, that white parents can do to, uh, to work on social, ju- social justice, racial justice issues. Um, and it, it's, it's basically kind of graded so that you can kind of start where you are, that if you've never had a conversation about race with your child before, then 
that's a really good place to start. <laughs> Increasing the diversity of your child's bookcase, um, all these kinds of things that you can take action on in your home to start having these conversations. And then how do we take that out into the world? You know, we need to, when we see systems that are, that are working to increase our privilege, to perpetuate our privilege, we need to start breaking those down. So my daughter's school used to have, may still have a policy that um, if, if you knew somebody already at the school, then you would go to the front of the line for admission. And so that actually worked really well for us when our care fell through and we knew three families at the school and they vouched for us and, and we got in with, with no difficulty whatsoever. But what it means is that if you don't happen to know the mostly white families at the school, then your application goes to the back of the line. And so I wrote to the administrators of the school and said, you know, I, I just realized in my privilege that I benefited from this system that is making it more difficult for diverse families to be able to attend this school. Would you consider uh, revising that policy. And so they said they would take it under advisement and they would discuss it. And I, we're obviously no longer enrolled in that school <laughs> anymore. Mm. And so um, my hope is that the policy has shifted and that they now will admit on sort of a, a, um, a level playing field approach as it were, or possibly even a, uh, an approach that um, allows a greater diversity of families than has historically been at that school. But that, you know, that's a tiny example of the kinds of work that we need to be doing that when we see something that benefits us and that, that perpetuates our privilege, that we need to ask, you know, should, should, is that the way it should be working? And if we think it's not, then, well, what step am I going to take to, to change that? And right now, more than ever, I think there's receptivity. There's like this, yeah this crack, this opening, and that requires all of us to speak up. And especially for white people where they're, where they have privilege, acknowledging that, and then using that to create, to create bigger, a bigger and bigger and bigger crack to yeah. um, make change. So I love that example of, of your school of as something as just starting a conversation with folks is incredibly powerful and joining forces and starting more conversations. Yeah. Um, and then so, talking with your child about what you're doing as well. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. that they see your values, that you're living your values and how this shows up in your life as well. Um, and that it's not just something that you do kind of on the side without discussing it with them, without right. involving them. Right. That's how they're learning. Absolutely. Yeah. Through your modeling. Our children yeah. definitely learn through our modeling. They do. <laughs> You've mentioned a tremendous amount of the resources that you offer on your website, your podcast. I know you also have some offerings of online learning. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those so that if folks want to learn more from you and participate in those, what they, what they learn about? Yeah. So everything flows through yourparentingmojo.com. Um, and that's where you can find all of the podcast episodes that we've talked about. And I'll send you links to <laughs> some of the ones that we spent the most time on so that right. uh, folks can navigate directly to those if they want to. Um, there's the, the podcast episodes tend to dive deeply onto a, or into a specific topic like patriarchy, um, like issues related to race, uh, like grit or growth mindset, or, you know, some, some of the topics that there's lots of research on. And then I also also produce blog posts that kind of cut across all of those and say, well, okay, if we if we tie together what we know about race and about patriarchy and <laughs> about grittiness, for example, what, what does that tell us about how to, to move forward in the world at the moment? Um, so, so those resources are freely available. And then there's also uh, a variety of courses from the Pandemic Pods in a Box course that helps you to figure out, okay, is, is a pod the right thing for my family? And if, if it is, how do I go about finding other families? And 
and hiring a teacher and putting a contract in place with the teacher and and baking the social justice considerations into the entire way the pod is formed rather than it being an afterthought or or, or not a thought. So um, so that walks you through as every aspect of that uh, decision making process. Um, there's also the confident homeschooler, which helps you to see, okay, could homeschooling, like withdrawing my child from school, be the right option for my family? If so, what could it look like? Would we follow a curriculum? Do we need to follow a curriculum? Um, would my child ultimately learn more if we didn't follow a curriculum and, and would it be less stressful? So those are a couple of, of resources that are probably most relevant to parents right now. Um, and then I also have a couple of memberships as well that I'll be opening in the coming weeks where uh, I support parents um, in, in two aspects related to parenting and related to learning. So on the parenting side, uh, really uh, digging deeply into some of the, some of the issues that, that are, are facing all parents like tantrums. That's kind of where we start. You know, how do we deal with tantrums in a way that, that means we don't actually have to have a tantrum on the same topic more than once most of the time. And then once we've solved that, how do we kind of take a step back with the space that we've created and say, okay, what are, what are my values about parenting and how am I going to align my daily interactions with my child with those values? How do I talk about this with my spouse without getting their back up? Because <laughs> there tend to be a lot of uh, ways that, that uh, the parent who's doing all the research on this might present this information to a spouse that, that may not be welcomed. Um, and so how do, how do we get on the same page and where is it okay to not be on the same page? Age. And then going from there into topics like uh, raising healthy eaters and navigating screen time and, and all of the, the kind of daily challenges. Um, so that's the parenting one. And on the learning side, it's really about how do we support this intrinsic love of learning that children have when they're young, that research shows by second grade is, is, is in many children is just gone. Um, when, when researchers show up in classrooms looking to study curiosity, what they find is children asking, well, how do we do this thing? And is it going to be on the test? Um, mm. They're not asking questions anymore about, about things that are important to them. And so how can we support them in continuing to ask those kinds of questions and find those answers and learn how to learn whether or not they're within the school system? So, yeah, um, yeah so all of that's at yourparentingmojo.com. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot there. <laughs> it's been a busy few months. <laughs> yeah, you've been busy. You, you clearly go into drive when your threat system is up. That's, I, I, I tend to do the same thing. I go into drive as well. So yes. good. We, we get to be the benefits of all that drive. Yes. Um, so we will, we will link to all of that. And I hope that if nothing else, our listeners will check you out at your parenting mojo podcast, because it's a, a wealth of resources and dives into each of the topics we just kind of tiptoed into today mm -hmm. in a much deeper way with wonderful guests and, and your own creations as well. So thank you so much, Jen, for coming on the show. It's been a joy to talk with you about all things parenting. Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.